0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Isaiah 9, 6 and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, all right. It's good to be with you all. How we doing? Happy Thanksgiving. Late? That's good. I got some energy in the room. That's great. That's great. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Walker. I'm on staff here at Citizens. It's good to be with y'all. This is good. Advent's good. I'm excited. Uh, we are, as we've teased already, we're jumping into a new sermon series this week called "Hope Has a Name." That will take us all the way up to Christmas. So as Tim introduced in the call to worship, these four Sundays characterized Advent, where we intentionally celebrate the coming of Jesus. So it's probably no secret to you that Christmas is coming. If you have a pulse, you probably know that Christmas is coming. As soon as Labor Day hit, all the marketing pivoted to Christmas. Thanksgiving is just a blip on the radar, isn't it? It's interesting, though, how the world has fully embraced this celebration of Christmas. There's something about the season that the world would tell you brings hope. All the marketing, all the shows, all the warm and fuzzies put out this idea that hope is found in the season or the family time or the time off or the gratitude or the newness. You fill in the blank. Whatever it may be, our culture has bought hook, line, and sinker into the idea that Christmas makes people happy. Deeper than that, Christmas brings people hope. It gives you something to hope in. Think about it, you watch a Hallmark movie and you hear Joy to the World being sung in the background as the neighborhood choir sings it, and the two main characters are in the Christmas parade and they share a warm embrace. In the Christmas parade, as the snow lightly falls, you ask me what Hallmark movie, I would say every Hallmark movie. This might make us feel good in the moment, but I would suggest that that hope is shallow. The message of Christmas for Christians is that hope is not found in the season. It's not found in the decorations. It's not found in the festivities. Instead, hope is rooted in the reality of the Bible. The Bible says that hope is found in a person. Hope is found in the Savior. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus, as we just sung. So the Advent season it intentionally remembers that while the Christmas add-ons are good, they're not the reason for the season. Catch that? That was good, right? Tim made me put that in there, so all payments or complaints go to Tim. Jesus is the, re- is the reason for the season. Advent is our acknowledgement that our only hope in this life is Jesus. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at one verse, Isaiah 9-6, that talks about the coming Messiah, reminding us that hope indeed has a name. Isaiah 9-6 says... For us, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We'll spend each week looking at each of these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. This prophecy is coming to the people of God in the midst of some pretty dark times. Bad things have happened to them, The Assyrians have sacked their country and have desolated their cities, and they've actually done a lot of bad things as well. The people of God have done bad things. They've been foolish, they have not obeyed God, and they have not listened as God has tried to correct them. On top of that, there's more suffering on the horizon. There's no peaceful falling snow around the fire without chocolate. These these circumstances are really bleak, and it's really not unlike our own situation. We've had a hard year. Two years. Crazy things have happened to us. We are beat up. We're weary. We're callous. We've also done some bad things this year. Some of us are carrying the shame and guilt of decisions and actions over this last year, and we really don't want to reflect on this last year because it makes, it forces us to engage with some of those mistakes So like the people of God, in our context in Isaiah 9, we don't need some ethereal, feel-good hope that's offered to us by the culture. We need real hope. We need Jesus. In the midst of our very real pain, or our very real suffering, God is showing us where hope is found. He gives these four titles to show us who Jesus is supposed to be to us. So today we're going to focus on the title Wonderful Counselor. And to do so, we're going to look specifically at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that takes this wonderful counselor from a nice idea to a glorious reality. So before we dive in, pray with me. Great God, we do praise you for who you are, that you're God, that you've revealed yourself to us in and through your word. We praise you for the word, God, that you've given it to us, that we may know you, we pray, God, that she would do what only you could do in this time, and that she would make your word um, effective in our hearts. God, I do pray that my words would fall to the ground and not be remembered anymore, but God, may your word remain, and may it change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the, one of the best jobs I've ever had—working at Citizens is wonderful. It's one of the best jobs. Another one of the best jobs I've ever had is— I underestimated how that would feel with my boss sitting over there. That's funny. Uh, another one of the best jobs I've ever had is being a summer camp counselor. For three summers in college, I worked at a Christian summer camp in Missouri, and it was incredible. I've never sweated as much, I've never slept so hard, and I've never had more fun. It was wonderful. And one of my favorite activities was the zip line. And this is where the rubber met the road for an eight-year-old. It was the greatest thing to see eight-year-olds conquer fears kids would melt down, full meltdown at the top of the zip line. I mean, think about it. You're on a suspension bridge, six stories in the air, and you're staring down a 3 football football-field length of a zip line that's over water. Why would you not melt down? I would melt down. But you're standing at the top of the zip line, and it's just full tears, snot, nerves, shakes. Lots of things would happen. So the person in charge at the top of the zip line. You're juggling a lot, You have to wear a lot of different hats with this eight-year-old. You kneel down, and you get close to them and you remind them, hey, it's okay. It's okay. You're okay. You're safe. You're okay. Then you have to work through the fears. Okay, what are you scared of? What is your fear? This harness, it's going to hold you. You feel how safe it is? These clips, they're so strong. They're not going anywhere. Then you have to instill some confidence. Hey, you can do it. We'll be right there with you. You can do it. I believe in you. All three of those things, you have, to, you have to wear each one of those hats really quickly. And it was the coolest, most rewarding experience to see the kid who has a meltdown at the top of the zip line actually do it and conquer his fear and come bouncing up the hill to do it again. It was the greatest thing. When the rubber meets the road in our life, we're all looking for somebody at the top of the zip line to move into our mess and to help us figure out life we have a category for people like this. Some, some of us see a counselor. If we don't have a counselor, we at least have a friend or a mentor who we call when we need wisdom or advice. Think about your motivation when you call that person or when you talk to that counselor. You want somebody to sympathize with you. You want somebody to make sense of what's happening in your life. And you want somebody to instill some confidence in you. Hey, you're, you're doing okay. You're doing well. These are all things that we're asking, am I, am I alone? Am I okay? Does anyone understand what's happening with me? While these people, these relationships, whether it's the friend or the mentor or the counselor, can and do instill hope in us, Jesus is the truer, better, more wonderful counselor. He is a counselor to whom people bring their problems, but he is different from the earthly counselor's that trusted friend because he has the power and the authority to address our deepest problems. Jesus as our wonderful counselor is good news for us. So we'll look at Hebrews 4 to see the hope that comes from seeing Jesus as our wonderful counselor. We'll see how Jesus sympathizes with us, see how Jesus intercedes for us, and how Jesus invites us in, and how these things should instill confidence in us to come to him as our wonderful counselor. So let's first look at how Jesus sympathizes. Look with me again at verse 15. It says, "...for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." So the word that probably stands out to you is that word sympathy. I don't think we would readily identify Jesus in sympathy. I think we would get there with Jesus and powerful, but Jesus and and sympathetic, that's kind of weird and uncomfortable if we truly admitted it. Can Jesus be sympathetic? Is Jesus showing sympathy? Is that a sign of weakness on his behalf? Our text actually shows us it's a really good thing for us. The sympathy of Jesus is relieving for our weary souls. The author is conveying that Jesus actually shares our experience. Jesus is familiar with the human life, so he understands what we experience. He hurts when we hurt. He rejoices when we rejoice. He laughs when we laugh. Jesus is able to do this because he took on flesh, and he lived life as a man. He's not aloof and disengaged, like sometimes we wrongly believe. He is acutely aware of the human experience because he experienced it it, it all himself. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Don't miss Jesus' humanity. Think about some of these images. Think about one-year-old Jesus having a dirty diaper and Joseph having to clean it. Think about seven-year-old Jesus playing with his friends in the neighborhood, tripping and falling and skinning his knee and coming back to the house crying and Mary having to clean his knee. Think about 12-year-old Jesus growing facial hair for the first time. He's human. He's human. Think about 27-year-old Jesus sleeping wrong and waking up with back pain. 27 is the scientifically proven age that back pain starts, by the way. Anyway, think, think about some of the things we read in the Bible. Jesus gets tired and thirsty. He grows and he learns. Jesus grieves and he cries. Jesus both goes to parties and he experiences betrayal. Jesus both experiences joy and Experiences sorrow, Jesus suffers, and he feasts. These images might make us a little uncomfortable, but it's important to understand that Jesus is fully human and he experienced the fullness of what it means to be human on this earth. He did not come to earth and just float around, not touching the ground. We're not getting into the nitty gritty of life. We get a drastically different picture of the Jesus of the Bible. None of the human experience is foreign to him, yet he does all of this, and he does not sin. He doesn't sin, and this is significant. He endured everything that is part and parcel to being a man, yet was sinless. But that's not because he wasn't tempted. Actually, his entire life from beginning to end was one of temptation. We see in the gospel accounts the temptations that he had to endure. The devil actually tries to twist his words against him, tries to get him to compromise after 40 days in the wilderness of fasting. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to compromise after missing lunch. (laughs) We see later that Jesus is tempted to compromise again at the end of his life. Peter, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, tries to twist the plans of God against Jesus. Say, hey, you don't really need to suffer. You don't really need to die. Jesus rebukes him. His whole life is one of temptation. Temptation. It's, it's everywhere for him to balk at the plan of God, yet he bows his neck. And not only does he refuse to bend in those moments, he actively defeats the one who is doing the tempting. He beats the tempter. He defeats the, the enemy. He has victory over temptation. Because of this, he can deeply sympathize with our own temptations. He has experienced the fullness, the fullness of, of temptation, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis that summarizes it well. It says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And in Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. No human was tempted like Jesus was. It's not just this intellectual sympathy. It's real experiential sympathy. This gives you hope in the midst of suffering. Jesus' experiential suffering, sorry, experiential sympathy should warm your heart. He sees you. He's not blind your suffering. He's not blind to your hardship. He understands your hurt. He knows your temptation. Your prayers do not fall on deaf ears. His heart is moved towards yours. He weeps when you weep, and he rejoices when you rejoice. Actually, he does those two things more than you do for yourself. He is your advocate. He is your counselor. When you're tempted, or when you suffer? Do you run to Christ? This is what we're looking for when we think about the counselor or the trusted friend, right? We run to this person because we want sympathy. But do you run to Jesus? Do you ever think about how he can sympathize with you? In the face of temptation or the face of suffering, don't go anywhere else. Go to Jesus. He's full of sympathy, and he wants deeply to meet you in your time of need. It actually gets better than this, though. Not only does Jesus sympathize with us in our weakness, he actually wades into the mess of life and he intercedes for us. Look with me again at verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So a question that undergirds a lot of the Bible, how can a holy and sinless God dwell with sinful people? In the Old Testament, God mercifully creates a way through what's called the priesthood. The priest was the one who would represent the people before God. So once a year, the high priest would go into this area of the temple, what was called the Holy of Holies. This was the, the place that God appeared and dwelt with his, with his people. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to present a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. This was a daunting task. All of the purity laws had to be followed to a T. Otherwise, the priest would die. They would actually tie a rope to his ankle to pull him out in case he did die, in case the purity laws weren't followed to a T. So this is how God was able to dwell with his people. It's a gracious yet also kind of a gnarly system. So when we read in our text how Jesus is the great high priest, this is revolutionary. It's saying that Christ himself is superior to the old priesthood. The old way of priestly sacrifice that covers the sins of the people was only done in part, and it had to be constantly repeated. Now Christ has done fully what the old priest could only do partly. The people of God no longer have to come with sacrifices to be accepted before God. Jesus is both the priest, the one who represents the people before God, and he is the sacrifice, the covering for sin. And he does both of those perfectly. Now all that's required is to trust, to trust in him. Through Jesus, your sin can be fully dealt with. Jesus' death is a once and for all sacrifice for sin, and he answers our deepest question. This is what our text means when it says he's passed through the heavens. Because of Jesus, there's nothing that's off limits to us. When he dies, Jesus tears that dividing wall into the dividing veil that used to separate God and man. Before man, it was off limits to man. Now the veil is separated. Nothing is off limits to us. It gives you and me access to God if we trust in Jesus. He passed through the heavenly places and he secures a place for us. And now he is seated at the right hand of God. His priestly work of representing his people before God is complete. He's the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And he has given us full access to God through faith in him. There's finality there. Again, isn't this what we're looking for in a counselor or a friend? We want somebody to tell us that we're doing okay. We want somebody to make sense of the mess of our life. Somebody to help us deal with our guilt and our shame. And here's the thing. Those people, that counselor or that trusted friend can only tell you what's true or tell you what to do. Jesus actually does it. Only Jesus can take away your sin. Only Jesus can deal with your shame and your guilt. He entered into the holy place to secure a place for you and to assure you of God's love. It's better. It is better for you to come to Jesus with your sin. In fact, the Bible actually says you must do it. Rather than trying to clean yourself up, rather than trying to perform for his love, rather than beating yourself up for the bad things that you've done, rather than running from him, come to him. His mercy is sweet. There's freedom in Christ. You don't have to carry the burden of making yourself worthy before God. Jesus has already done that. He's dealt with your sin, and he sits at the right hand of the, of the Father, and he advocates on your behalf. He can be trusted as our wonderful counselor because he answers our burning questions. Am I okay? Am I good enough? He actually answers emphatically. He says, no, you're not. You're not okay. and You're not good enough. But he says, I am. He is the answer. He takes our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. He makes us right before God. It's through him, his sacrifice, and his representing us to the Father that we have access to God. And we don't have to tiptoe around fearful. We can boldly come to Christ because of his invitation. Look with me again at verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. a beautiful reality. Our text has been building a case. Why can I trust Jesus as my wonderful counselor? In verse 16, there's a pivot to show us how to respond in light of what we have come to know about Jesus. We've seen how he sympathizes with us in our human experience, how nothing that we go through is foreign to him. And we've seen how his sacrifice and his priestly ministry are good news for us. He has dealt with our sin and he represents us before God. In light of those things, he invites us to come trusting that we'll be received as sons and daughters. If we trust Jesus, that he has done these things that we've talked about, we can freely come before God. The only condition is trust. We can come freely, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. If we trust in him, his righteousness, his right standing before God is attributed to us. His acceptance before God is given to us. A month ago, we wrapped up a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the continual truths that we saw was that all that Christ has, you have as a believer. What is true of Christ is true of you. Our text is saying the same thing. The love that God the Father has for God the Son, this unbreakable, eternal, this never-ending love, is the same love that God the Father has for you. You hear that? The same love that the Father has for Jesus is is the love that he has for you if you're found in Christ. What's true of Christ is true of you. This changes everything because Christ is accepted in God's sight. Those who trust in Jesus are accepted in God's sight. We can come freely and confidently to the throne of grace and expect to receive mercy, expect to be received as welcomed. When you come, your title in the eyes of God is no longer sinner. Your title is saint. Your title is son. Your title is daughter. My parents have these two basset hounds that are hilarious creatures. They are simultaneously cute and gross. The bigger one's name is Duke. Picture uh, Dopey the dwarf in dog form, and that's what Duke looks like. My parents love Duke so much that they feed him from the table. And I'm not talking about scraps, like leftover stuff. I'm talking like legit human food. Like I'm talking cheese, eggs, steak. They make steak for Duke. It's wild. Duke loves it. And he looks like he loves it, Do you know what I mean. <laughs> There's this time each night where it clicks in Duke's brain that he has not had his daily allotment of human food and he's not okay with that. So what he does is he starts to moan. And it doesn't matter if he's just pounded a bowl of dog food. He, when, he's, when he's there, he's there. He's ready for his human food. So he moans, and he moans, and he moans, and he moans. And it's not like this silent moan. It's like beluga whale moan. It's, it's loud. He moans until somebody recognizes his plight and gives him human food. And it makes sense, though, right? Like, once you've tasted a good steak, why would you ever want that dry dog food stuff? Why would you ever want that? We do this, too. Think about when you've had really good wine or you've had a sommelier explain to you, like, the notes of the grapes and the flavors and your taste buds and how they all interact and what you like or don't like. Once you've done that, the two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's just, it's not there, right? It doesn't cut it anymore. But for whatever reason, we don't do this with Jesus. We don't do it with Jesus. Our text shows us how Jesus invites us to let Him be our wonderful counselor, because He sympathizes with us, because He intercedes for us, because He invites us in to have confidence that He is who He says that He is. But we don't let Him actually do it. Instead, we do our own version of the sacrificial system. It just looks different. We bring our own sacrifices to God to, earn, to deal with our sin and to earn his favor. Think about how we approach God. Like, hey God, I know I have this thing that I did earlier, but did you see how I really sacrificed for that person over there and how I helped that person? I went out of my way. Did you see how I sacrificed? We perform for God. Or like, hey God, did you... I know I have that thing that I struggle with that you don't like, but haven't I made so much progress? i put in so much work. I've white-knuckled it. I've tried so hard, and now let me come before you. We clean ourselves up before God. Or, hey, God, I know I'm struggling with that thing, and I'm terrible. I'm the worst. Like, how could you love me? What makes me worthy of love? Like, what, what are you doing with me? We beat ourselves up before God. Or we say, hey, God, I've, really, I've messed up. I don't really think it's time for me to come to you, so I'm going to run. I'm going to distance myself from you. It's best that we don't engage. We avoid God. We run from God. All of these things are actually different versions of the same problem. We don't trust that Jesus actually sympathizes with our weakness. We don't trust that he's in our corner We don't trust that he is the one who can fully and finally deal with our sin, that we might be accepted by God. We don't trust that in him we have full access to God. If I can be honest with you, most of my Christian life has been spent wrestling with these ideas. I generally believe that Jesus is powerful, but the idea that he's in my corner, fighting for me, sympathizing with me, advocating on my behalf to the Father. is a different story. These questions come up in my mind like, does Jesus care? Does he actually see me? Can he really relate? Does he understand what I'm going through? How how does he help me? Does Jesus really do anything about it? So in my mind, there's this constant debate over Jesus's thoughts about me. Generally, I would tell you that I think he's disinterested with me. When I sin, I would tell you that I think he's frustrated with me or that I'm a a burden to him, that he's set this standard and that I don't live up to it. And when I don't do those things, that he just kind of rolls his eyes. He's like, gosh, can you believe this guy? Like, after all that I've done for him, can you believe what he's doing? Like, who is this dude? So my response, I work. I work for his affection, I clean myself up before him, or I wallow in my self-pity and I beat myself up thinking that somehow my pity party will win the attention of God. Or once I've tried all of those, I'll run, I'll distance myself from him. None of those things answer the burning question of how I can relate to God and deal with my sin. None of those responses answer the question, am I okay? Am I good enough? These attempts to try to answer those questions on my own only make my anxiety spike. Our text invites me and invites us to stop striving. Jesus can be trusted as our wonderful counselor. This brings relief to the, that you no longer have to worry about the handling of your own sin. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for it. It also brings hope. To know that you are accepted in God's sight if you trust Jesus. You are a son or a daughter. Your your label when you go before God is no longer sinner, it is saint. You are accepted in God's sight, and this brings hope. You can come confidently to the throne of grace and expect to receive mercy. Not because of anything that, that you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. What is true of Christ is true of you. Will you confidently trust that Jesus has done those things? Will you confidently trust him as your wonderful counselor? Pray with me. God, we praise you that you are kind, that you do sympathize with us, Jesus, that you know our frame, you know our weakness, you know our temptation. It's not foreign to you. You are intimately acquainted with the human life. We praise you that that's a reality, Jesus, and that you sympathize with us and that you move into, you wade into the mess of our life and you help us make sense of our sin and deal with our sin so that we can be accepted before God. We praise you for that, Jesus, that you are both the sacrifice and you are the representation because we can't do it on our own. No matter how hard we try, God, we cannot do it on our own. So, God, I pray that you would help us see this beautiful invitation that you're making in and through Jesus to us, for us, that we could come confidently to the throne of grace and expect to receive mercy. I pray that we would see Jesus as our wonderful counselor, because it is better for us to come to Jesus, come to to you, Jesus, with our sin, than for us to try to do it on our own, because we can't. Jesus, I pray that you would minister to us. Remind us of this truth. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name, amen.